From our 901 Mission Street studios, you are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Welcome to the Daybook Podcast. I'm Chronicle pop culture critic Peter Hartlob here with reporter Sam Whiting. Welcome, sir. Thank you, Peter. It's good to be down here in the Chronicle morgue with former Chronicle reporter Duffy Jennings, who covered just about as many important murders as anybody. Duffy Jennings here in the Chronicle archive. It seems perfect. He's written a book called Reporter's Notebook about his 10 years at the Chronicle. Uh, what comes to your head first when you think about Duffy Jennings, Sam? Well, I always think about uh, Board of Supervisors President Diane Feinstein standing on the steps of City Hall announcing that uh, Mayor Moscone and Supervisor Milk have been shot and killed. And while she's making this speech, she's looking right into the eyes of Duffy Jennings. Yeah, he was in his 20s then, um, very young while he was at the Chronicle, um, also intertwined with the Zodiac. That's what I think of first, partly because he was played by Adam Goldberg in the Zodiac movie. What surprised you most about the book, though? There are the things we know about Duffy Jennings. What, what did you learn about him? Well, the most surprising thing to me was that he grew up hard scrabble on the streets of San Francisco uh, with a single mom who was a bad alcoholic who also happened to own Dory's, a gay bar on the north side of town and maybe the first gay bar on the north side of San Francisco. A lot of that in the book. I read the book and enjoyed that part a lot. I love the Chronicle parts, but I loved... Um, getting into that scene, too. Jennings is at the Commonwealth Club on Monday, August 5th at 6 p.m. He'll also be at local bookstores. Check his site, www.duffyjennings.com. Datebook Podcasts, thanks for listening. Duffy, let's uh, start at the very beginning. Let's start with your name, because... Both your first name and your last name have significance to the city of San Francisco and specifically the Chronicle, where we are today. Duffy Jennings was a name given to me by my father when I was born, and I was named after the warden of San Quentin Prison named Clinton Duffy. And at the time, he had just finished his first book, or one of his first books, uh, a biography of Warden Duffy, and my parents liked that name, and that's that's been my name ever since. But your dad was a newspaper man, is that right? He was a lifelong uh, newspaper man, columnist, uh, magazine writer, book writer, yes. Briefly took the place of Herb Cain, I read in your book, uh, when Herb Cain went to the Examiner. It's true. Uh, Herb uh, defected, if you will, <laughs> for eight years, as I recall, from 1950 to 1958. And over that span of time, the Chronicle put four or five different columnists in that spot to fill it and see what might work best. And I think my dad had it uh, from 1951 to maybe early 1953. He called it It's News to Me. And it was basically the same kind of column, a man about town, gossip column sort of thing. What what was your first, like, newspaper memory? I mean, clearly this is something that growing up you you had in your household? Well, uh, not exactly, because my parents divorced when I was three. Yeah. However, uh, my mother, who was working for my father at the time as, an, as his assistant, 
uh, stayed at the paper with him for a little while after that, while he was still there. But uh, And they will tell you, or my mother used to tell me that Herb carried me around the Chronicle newsroom in my infant <laughs> basket after I was born. Uh, and then I think my other first memories are a school trip down here to watch hot lead being made, and we all got our names in little lead slugs. Uh, but I was delivering the Chronicle before I was 11 years old in my neighborhood in the Marina District. So those are some of my, my early memories. As, as far as actually being here, uh, I really don't remember much about, again before I came in to see A. Melenkoff and asked for a job when I was 19. And uh, your mother, her name means something too, right, in this city? Uh, my mother's name was Doris, uh, but she liked to be called Dory. Everyone called her Dory. And she has a very interesting background, which is a, which is a part of this book and a part of my own uh, personal growth issues as a, as a, both as a middle school, high school kid and while I was at the Chronicle in that um, despite graduating from Stanford University in the class of 1934 with people like Hewlett and Packard, uh, she left a regular bank job when I was 12 years old to buy a bar in the Presidio Heights district. And within a year, she turned it into what became one of the most popular and discreet gay bars in San Francisco. And this is early 60s. Yeah, you. you it's called I, Club Dory, by the yeah, way. Yeah, Club Dory, and it it was a issue for you in that. Um, on one hand, I think you recognize now, as as I did reading it, that there's a heroic element to the fact that she stood up to the police, and certainly people in 2019 San Francisco would think a gay bar owner in the 60s who stands up to police and and nurtures these people coming in and treats them to some degree like family, as you wrote. But at the same time, she was distant with you, and, and that must have been very hard. It was, because uh, she spent long hours at the bar uh, during my teen years. Um, she, uh, she tended bar, which you could only do as a woman at that time if you owned the place. Otherwise, women were not allowed by state regulations to tend bar. This also was years before the Stonewall Inn incident and riots in 1969. This is early 60s. So she was very um, self-confident, forceful, protective of her, of her customers. And that meant that my brother and I were pretty much left to raise ourselves from about 13 on. Everybody of a certain age has a Vietnam draft story. I bet you have one. I, uh, I was a terrible student in school, uh, even though I went to Lowell High School. Um, and there's a lot in the book about the issues that I was facing personally uh, because of my mother's business and her clientele and my own adolescent confusion about that. Um, but it left me at the end of high school without any any career uh, ambitions or college ambitions. Um, and so within a year after uh, graduating from high school and spending a few, um, a few months at uh, City College, uh, my grades were tanking and I, I just was going nowhere and the Vietnam War was escalating at a, at a high rate and I... Um, I knew I didn't want any part of it, and I'm not sure if I understood that politically at that time, but, uh, but clearly I, th I felt I had something else to do. Uh, but I did join the Marine Corps Reserve, and then I was out of that after six months. Um, but 
in in that context, in the early uh, late '60s, early '70s, I had to keep my hair really short. All my friends were had long hair, and they were down at the Panhandle of Golden Gate Park on the weekends listening to music, and it just it just didn't seem like a fit for me. Um, but uh, but it's odd that one of the very first my actual very first reporting assignment with the Chronicle, my first day on the job, December first, nineteen sixty nine, I was sent to interview. It happened to be the day of the Vietnam draft lottery. And I was sent to find a, a kid whose birthday had come up number one in the drawing in Washington that they were doing out of this big barrel of 366 numbers. And thanks to the Chronicle Library, and it won't be the last time I thank the Chronicle Library for, <laughs> for making everything possible, I was able to find a boy who'd been born on that date, September 14th, 19 years earlier, I found him in a dorm in USF and went to interview him. And it turned out to be a pretty good story because all the kids in the dorm were freaking out about whatever their birthday number was coming up and were they going to be able to get through the, the, without being drafted. Uh, and I came back. I went with photographer Jerry Telfer, and we, we took a bunch of pictures. And I came back, and I wrote a story about this. And um, the next day, it was um, I found it in the paper on my front porch, uh, with a byline, which was absolutely unheard of for any reporter on his first day on the job. But I, I had some good friends at the, on the desk at that time, and they were all kind of rooting for me. And so that turned out to be my Vietnam War story was uh, this, this poor kid from San Mateo who'd been drawn number one. I don't know whatever happened to him. but Well, since you brought up your first day, let's talk about your most memorable day. Obviously, the the most memorable day for me was the was November twenty seventh, nineteen seventy eight, the day that uh, Dan White shot and killed Mayor George Moscone and Supervisor Harvey Milk in their offices at City Hall. I was on general assignment that morning. I was sitting at my desk, uh, reading papers and drinking coffee and waiting for an assignment. When uh, Dick Kemp, the day editor, the assignment editor. Uh, heard from our police beat reporter Bob Pop that there had been a shooting at City Hall, and he sent me up there with a photographer named Clem Albers. Clem Albers, uh, who had had covered uh, World War II and and before, I, I see his photos all the time. We're in the photo archive. I mean, Clem yeah. was, I think, seventy five at that time, and he yeah. covered stories with my father at the Chronicle. That's wow. That's how long he'd been around, but he sure knew his way around a camera. And we went up to City Hall, and we joined the you know, the other reporters and try to get our arms around the chaos and what was going on. There was a long time there before there was any official announcement of who'd been shot uh, and any other confirmation about the, the incident that day. But it was certainly, I would have to say, the most adrenaline-pumping, most exciting uh, and, and most tragic day I spent as a reporter. Uh, but the book mentions there was more to it regarding you and Supervisor Feinstein. That's correct. Uh, at, at one point, after a couple hours and in, in sort of without any confirmation, it w there was an announcement that Supervisor Feinstein, who was the president of the board at that time, was going to make an announcement at the top of the rotunda stairs, um, some official confirmation of what had happened. Interestingly enough, you know, she had just come back the day before. She was in the Himalayas 
uh, on her way to, to summit Everest or at least get as far up as she could. And she got sick and had to come home. And, uh, and so she wasn't feeling well, but, um, but it was expected that the board meeting that day would welcome the new member of the Board of Supervisors, Don Haranzi, in, to replace Dan White. So, uh, so Supervisor Feinstein came out on the top of the stairs. There must have been 30 media reporters, TV, uh, radio folks there, kind of, kind of all staring anxiously to hear what she had to say. And anybody who's seen that actual announcement on video, and you can find it on YouTube today, can see this look in her eyes that's just uh, horrific and, um, and distant and somewhat uh, even in a shocking kind of expression that I had not ever seen before on, on anyone. And as we all stood waiting, I got this sense that she was looking at me, which maybe everybody in the room felt that way, but I am tall, uh, and I was uh, visibly uh, more apparent in this group of reporters. I had worked as the City Hall uh, Bureau correspondent for a couple of years be right before this, so I knew her fairly well, but I got this sense that she was, um, we were having this private meeting of some kind. And then she made this announcement uh, about uh, Moscone and Milk being shot and killed, and there's a gasp in the audience, just because even though it had been rumored, but the confirmation was was the uh, the, the shocking announcement. Um, and then uh, the only other thing she said was that the suspect was Supervisor Dan White, and she turned and walked back into her office. It was months later, it might have even been a year later, when she did an anniversary interview with somebody at the Chronicle, that she said that that's exactly what she was doing during that announcement was staring at me. And she makes reference, uh, and I put this in the book, to kind of focusing on me and my blue eyes and something, whatever she needed to do to steal herself for making this announcement. And that the only way she was able to do that was to keep her eyes focused directly into mine. She, you mention in the book that when she sees you, she greets you warmly but with sadness. Uh, I think you mentioned Dave Perlman, who I just interviewed uh, uh, on using this very equipment a few days ago, the retired 98-year-old at the time science writer, that you saw her and and tell, tell me what her reaction is now, uh, all these years later. Um, on the 30th anniversary of this day of tragedy, she held some kind of a press conference in her office here in San Francisco and asked me to be there. Uh, I hadn't seen her or talked to her for many years before that. And so when I came, she again mentioned specifically about what her thoughts and, and actions were on that day uh, relative to me. And then I didn't see her or talk to her again for nine years, I think. Um, I just don't have any occasion to. I'm long retired from the Chronicle and and uh, I wasn't involved in the news business, but I uh, uh, I went and then we and we talked there and we had lunch uh, the day after. She asked me to come to lunch and how are you doing? What's going on? Well, then I didn't see her for many years, but I came to the retirement event for Dave Perlman. So this is two years ago now, yeah. and of course um, she came and uh, paid tribute to Dave, and she may have brought some kind of certificate. I don't recall. And I saw her from across the room, and she looked, and she came right over, and we kind of crossed the room together and met. 
And she gave me a big hug and a kiss on the cheek and said words to the effect of, oh, Duffy, it's so great to see you again. It's been so long since I've seen you. And within seconds, she said, you know, seeing you always kind of makes me sad because <laughs> I just think of that day. And here we are 40 plus years later, um, and both of us are still impacted by this one day, this one event. And uh, what about your interactions with Dan White? I had almost no interactions with Dan White. By the time I left the City Hall Bureau uh, in uh, mid-1977, he was, new, he was new coming into the board, so I didn't, I didn't report on him as a board member. Once in a while, uh, when the City Hall reporter, whether it was, first it was Tom Benet, and then it was Marshall Kilduff, who, who became the City Hall guy, would have a sick day or vacation day or something, and I would fill in uh, on the board of supervisors meeting at that time. So I only knew Dan to say hello or shake hands, or, but had virtually no contact with him whatsoever. But you covered his trial, is that right? I did. Um, it, was, uh, it was, you know, March, I think, of um, 1979, the, a few months after the trial, and Dave Perlman came to me and he said, Bill German and the managing editor and I, we want you to cover the Dan White trial, which I, I was, I was uh, both surprised and, and gratified about that because I had, in all my other coverage over the years, I had never really covered a full-on, full-length trial. I sat in on a couple of days at, at the Patty Hearst trial, and I sat in on a couple of days, or I covered several days of the Golden Dragon restaurant trial, but never really had been assigned to cover a trial from end to end. So I, I was pleased with that, and, um, and I did cover that trial. And at that time, the judge, uh, Walter Calcagno, uh, set aside two seats inside the bulletproof glass that separated the galley, uh, the gallery from the actual tables where the uh, where the prosecution and defense sat, and he reserved those two table two seats for the Chronicle reporter and the Examiner reporter. So that was me and an Examiner reporter named Jim Wood, a, a very long, well respected guy. He's passed away since, and Jim and I were able to be inside that space to hear um, the, the uh, testimony more clearly, to actually see Dan White's face from time to time, which you could not see from the actual gallery. And then we also became, because of that, uh, sources for other media during breaks and, uh, and time off from the trial is to asking us questions of, did you see this? Did he say that? You know, tell us more. It was almost like a pool reporter type situation. And... Uh, <clears throat> Your coverage of that uh, was nominated for a Pulitzer, is that right? The paper did submit that work for a Pulitzer Prize. It, it, it didn't make any final lists uh, and certainly didn't win, but I was certainly gratified that they recognized that work. So uh, the Moscone Milk assassinations, the Dan White trial, what else? Well, those were the biggest, most dramatic events, but the one that was the most fun was the four weeks I spent embedded as a fireman in a San Francisco firehouse in 1972. There was a new book by a, uh, by a New York fireman named um, Dennis Smith. It was called Report from Engine Company 82. And he he's worked in a firehouse in the Bronx that was getting 700 calls a month. And we had an editor who went on vacation back east and came back with this book. And he said to me, this is an amazing thing. We need to do this. 
you need to do this. You need to go be a fireman, live with them, eat with them, fight fires with them, just become part of that. Now, we call this today embedded, but that's not, that word wasn't really used or existed at that time. Uh, and yet, uh, we got permission from the chief, and I got a quick couple, three days of training to keep from getting myself killed, and they gave me a, uh, a yellow helmet so other firefighters would know that that was the, re the reporter guy at scenes, but I had a full-on uniform. I had turnouts. I had everything uh, just the same as these guys, and I moved into 21 Engine, which is out on Grove Street near Broderick, uh, right near the Panhandle, which was at, at that time was the busiest firehouse in town. Can't tell you, tell you how many calls they were getting. And I spent four weeks on their schedule, which was 24 on, 48 off, 24 on, 48 off. So I slept there. I, I answered fires with them. They showed me how to work the hose. And, we, you know, I, I tried to stay out of trouble most of the time. But what kid doesn't want to grow up to be a fireman? <laughs> and uh, I was 25 at the time, and it was just the most exciting thing. Uh, and uh, And I spent... All that time there, it was really hard to get trusted and uh, took time for me to to endear these guys to tell me some pretty amazing stories about um, fires and what they'd done and how they live and react and all that. And I ended up writing a, a six-part series about that. What's really interesting about being embedded today anywhere versus 1972 is that that six-part series even though I was the embedded firefighter, never has the word I in it. But I had such a great time with that. I did win a national news writing prize for that from the Firefighters Association, and it was really one of the most rewarding things I'd ever done. I, I was surprised when I started the book and found out you had only been at the Chronicle for 10 years because I dig around in the archive and I see your name so much on these big stories you know, Golden Dragon, uh, um, you, Patty Hearst, all these things going on, and you were involved in a lot of them. You haven't even mentioned Zodiac yet. Um, and yet, I think that would have to have worn on you too, and maybe maybe the impact of some of these stories and the seriousness of it might have led to the fact that you were only here for 10 years. How did it feel like from your point of view? Did this Was this enjoyable, or was it wearing on you? I have to tell you, one of the inspirations for this book uh, is the fact that, and there were several, probably four I could point to, uh, but one of them was the realization that this was kind of a heyday for the Chronicle. This decade of the 70s, and that's why the word shocking 70s is in the title, is it seemed like day after day after day there was some new wild crazy thing. I, I honestly quote Carl Nolte, who's still here, on the city hall killings and saying it was a crazy ass day and that this whole decade was full of crazy ass days. As a young reporter, I couldn't believe it, obviously, that at first I was kind of really new and young and second, I didn't have a lot to, to of experiences to compare with it. It just seemed like this is how it is. Um, this is one of the most uh, tumultuous and chaotic uh, times to be working at the Chronicle. Uh, but you're absolutely right. It, it takes a toll. Now, truth, some reporters uh, have done this their whole careers, and they'll, they'll do it for their lifetime, and they've covered a lot more stuff and a lot more uh, dramatic things. 
Some have written, a lot of them have written their own books. I mean, you look at Joel Selvin, we've got 15, 16 <laughs> books already. Jerry Carroll's written several novels. Um, a, a number of people that I worked with have written books. I couldn't think of anyone that had written a book about what it was like to work here. Yeah. So that was, that was part of the, the motivation in that, given what uh, print journalism in particular is going through today, is, this is kind of an homage to a time when it was great to be a print reporter in this town and people really looked up to you and had a lot of respect for what you did and they dropped whatever they were doing to take your calls and answer your questions and, and PR people would call and say, you gotta kill that story. I mean, it was just, it was just a time when, the, when this business had so much more respect uh, and I was just so lucky to be in the middle of that uh, at that time. You could also get in the movies, right? <laughs> Um, well, yeah, but I never thought about that. Obviously, what's interesting is, and, you, and Peter, you mentioned Zodiac. Of course, I, I kind of learned at the knee of Paul Avery, who was a veteran crime reporter and had been a war correspondent when he started covering Zodiac, and I was really new here. But I love police work, and I became friends with Paul, and we, we spent a lot of time kind of talking about the case and looking at possible suspects. Uh, and over that time, I obviously became close uh had a close relationship with inspector dave toski and bill armstrong the two the two homicide detectives on that case um but i really didn't cover any zodiac murders i i covered whatever was left after paul left in the mid-70s and there were a number of letters and here we are uh, 50 years ago in october from zodiac's last killing the san francisco cab driver and i still get phone calls and emails several times a year uh, from people who say they know who it is and I need to track down this information and uh, and they've got handwriting samples and all this proof which of course I immediately call Kevin Fagan who yeah you two should start a support group <laughs> because he I know he gets these calls every week but curiously uh, you know what struck me odd is that Paul Avery had not been the guy to write the Zodiac book now he did lead the paper to write a book about uh, Patty Hearst in the SLA uh, with another writer um, and then he came back to work for the Examiner for a while and gradually um, retired, left the business, got sick, passed away in 2000 I believe it was and it wasn't until 1985 that Robert Graysmith who was the editorial cartoonist here and a, and a, um, a big fan of mysteries and cryptograms and puzzle solving that put together the, the, the book that finally became the Zodiac, the, the definitive Zodiac book, and then 20 years later was made into a movie by David Fincher. So in that, in that context, I know that Robert asked Fincher to make sure, because we got along so well, to make sure that I was represented in the film, not only because Avery suddenly leaves and there's nobody to take his place, after uh, after Robert Downey Jr. is some gone from the scene, uh, and he creates this scene where where uh, an actor named Adam Goldberg uh, walks into the newsroom with a box of stuff, and Jake Gyllenhaal comes over and says, "Oh, I you know we haven't met. She's um, a guy Paul Avery used to work here was a great reporter." And Adam Goldberg says, "How do you do?" He says, "I'm Duffy Jennings." Yeah, really good for, for Paul to go to the Sacramento Bee, huh? dare to dream, right, Robert? And that's the entire thing. There's a little <laughs> bit, another line or two later in the movie. Yeah. But 
you know, my kids got a kick out of it, and I can always look back at that and say, yeah, um, a, a, a good Hollywood actor played me in a movie for <laughs> two minutes. Do you remember your last day here? No. <laughs> Which is interesting because um, the reason I left, uh, and I'd been thinking about it, but I hadn't really done anything about it, but at that time I'd become close friends with uh, George Moscone's former press secretary named Corey Bush. And Corey, after uh, he, he'd left the mayor and he'd gone back to L.A. before he was killed, but after he was killed, he came back to San Francisco. And uh, in the course of uh, lining up pallbearers, uh, honorary pallbearers, he, um, he met Bob Lurie. Well, he had already put Bob Lurie in touch with, uh, with Mayor Moscone to save the Giants from going to Canada in 1976 but so this is three three four years later he meets Bob again Bob now has the team uh, he says I really need somebody who knows politics because we're trying to get a new ballpark built to replace Candlestick Park so Corey went to work for Bob and over the course of time he said to me you know we really need some help in our PR department would you ever consider leaving the Chronicle and I had to think about that for maybe 10 seconds I thought, oh, how fun could that be? I had played baseball all through college. I loved the game. The only thing I loved more than journalism was baseball. I thought, what an amazing opportunity that could be. Plus, I didn't kill people as much You know, baseball. I, you went through so much, so many big stories here. Um, you know, were you ready to leave? I mean, w- was, it, was it wearing on you? There were a lot of factors that influenced that, not just covering tragic incidents and seeing uh, seeing human tragedy so much. Uh, but at the same time, my personal life was unraveling on a number of other fronts. Uh, I was in the process of uh, getting separated and later divorced. Uh, and I, you know, I touch on this in this book because a memoir is, is one thing to tell about your career, but it, it has to have a personal backstory that indicates that you face some challenges and somehow managed to get through them. Uh, in my case, it took many, many years to do that, which is why I didn't write this book until, uh, until now, and I'm 72 years old. Uh, but sometimes it takes a long time to sort of figure out who you are and how your relationships work. And when you're the son of an alcoholic, uh, the adult child of an alcoholic it affects all your behaviors and decisions. So that was part of it was the idea of making a change in my life, not just on a career level, but on a personal level at the same time. So it was, it was, quite, uh, it was quite a time for me, uh, emotionally, psychologically, as well as uh, professionally, to make that change. But I don't know that I could have gone anywhere besides baseball at that point. And the news found you with baseball, right, too? The, excuse me? The news found you when you were with the Giants, right? <laughs> well, you know, baseball is a national sport, so I've now I'm involved in a lot of things that are not just San Francisco. And yet, uh, you know, I have a comment on my Facebook page from Lee Steinberg, the great sports agent, who's, who specifically says, uh, it comments that uh, the reading about my life at the Chronicle, and he knew about my life at the Giants, is that it had this Forrest Gump feel to it where – I tended to somehow be in the middle of some of these biggest stories. And, of course, I was the Giants public relations vice president on the day of the uh, 1989 Loma Prieta earthquake. There were a 1,000 media 
from all around the world uh, in the ballpark, writers, uh, cameramen, crew people, uh, and anybody uh, around knows the story. It it uh, it shocked everybody. It it postponed the World Series for ten days. Uh, so that was probably the most the biggest news story. I was also closely involved with uh, with pitcher Dave Dravecki in his battle with cancer and ultimately losing his arm. Uh, I had the dis- the distinction or the pleasure, I should say, in Montreal when when Dave fell down on the mound and snapped his arm in two, and he knew his career was over at that point. Of getting in the ambulance with him to ride to the hospital, well, I had left my assistant back at the ballpark to handle that part of it, Robin Carr. And in the in the ambulance, Dave is asking me, "How's the game going?" It was two nothing when he left, and he he pitched the full five innings, so he was he was uh, you know in position to have the decision. And he said, "I I gotta I, we gotta win this game. I want to finish the year two and zero. It was only the second game he <laughs> pitched in that year." He kept asking me to call the ballpark and find out what what was happening. And in fact, the Giants did win the game, and he did finish two and zero which was a real testament to Dave's strength of character and the kind of person that he is and, you know, still co- closely involved with the Giants. So, yes, there were there were more big stories. Uh, I was fortunate enough to help Willie McCovey write his Hall of Fame expe- acceptance speech, which some writers said was the best they'd ever heard. Uh, so, you know, every day was, a, was an amazing event. I had a book event uh, just not that long ago, a few weeks, and Bob Lurie came to the event. He's 90 years old, and it, it's a testament to our relationship. But I was I was really touched by that. He looks great, and he's really healthy, and he's he's busy with his things that he does, and he's playing golf a little bit sometimes. So, um, so I have a very special relationship with Bob and all the people that I worked with at the Giants, as I do with many people from here. Well, you've had a hell of a ride, Duffy. <laughs> it, I hope it's not over. <laughs> Uh, but thank you. Yeah. Did you, did you, uh, you mentioned you waited to write the book. Um, what about your approach just really quickly? Cause I, I appreciated the fact I, I dig around in the archive and I see the photos. I see Clem Albers work, but the machinery of the newsroom, I don't, I never really had a picture of that, of what went on. And you spend a lot of time in that. You, you, you mention how things work and seem to want to, want to kind of transmit that and let the reader know about that era that you've said and, and I think anybody who recognizes who's read Ears of the Chronicle that it was a very special era um, you seem to love journalism I mean even just 10 years and, and having 10 rough years I will always love journal journalism perhaps above all else career wise not just because I was sort of born into it and, and yet I became an accidental Chronicle reporter but it, there was something in the blood of both my parents were involved in it for years. Uh, but uh, the time that period you're, you're talking about, and I love the way that Bruce Jenkins references this in his foreword about a time when uh, when it wasn't so quiet and everybody wasn't just staring down at their phones to see what the latest tweet was. It was a time when there was lots of clacking typewriters and noise and people moving around and talking loud on the phone and stories getting stuffed into a plastic tube and whooshed down out to the composing room through a plastic tube. It, it was certainly a different era. A lot of people are nostalgic about it, as they should be, but um, it's, it's always part of my heart, for sure. Um, the interesting thing is, um, I had talked about, thought about writing a book for many years after I left the paper, 
and I'd freelanced a little bit for the paper even about some of these stories and events that we we talked about but again I was still going through an evolving process of my own personal growth and whether I could do this or not and the first draft very interestingly to me uh, I had an idea that I was going to write a book about being at the Chronicle and at the Giants Mm -hmm. and put all those stories in there and my stepdaughter uh, who's (laughs) very smart and perceptive looked at it and you know she's in around late 30s 40 ish and said uh, my first chapter in that book was about the city hall killings and she said you know this is great but someone my age doesn't really understand the history of it why did dan white want to kill george Moscone and harvey milk and it'd be great if you if you set that up a little more so those of us who weren't there will understand it and so I rewrote it completely. I kicked out the giant stuff altogether because I, I my publisher said that was just too weird and awkward. Plus, and now just, you have the sequel, and just that's right. <laughs> and then just focus on um, on the on the chronicle side. And once I did that, and and the other thing that she said to me was, "You're not in it. There's, your voice isn't there. If you're going to write a memoir, we need to know about you and what you think and what were you, what was going on in your head when all this was going on." So I threw everything out. And I started over, and I had just tremendous support and encouragement from my wife Bonnie Becker who uh, who I met you know 15 years ago and who's just been a tremendous source of inspiration and motivation to me to complete the things that I kept saying I was going to do and and didn't and she she had an, an amazing ability to sort of understand how to how to help me grow and and, and motivate me to, to do these things she motivated me to go back to San Francisco State University at the age of 60 and get my bachelor's degree. You finally got you finally walked down and I got f- your- I finally kept my promise to Abe Melenkoff that I would finish school. It was just 39 years later. <laughs> so so the process was long in coming, but once it, once it sort of fell into place, then it went pretty quickly and my publisher was very pleased with the the personal uh, background story which I think is I try to be very sort of honest about my own uh, shortcomings and my own uh, confusion and decision-making about everything, about relationships, about my work. Um, And the other motivation for me was my kids were born after I left the Giants, long after I left the newspaper, and they knew nothing about their their paternal grandparents uh, or the Jennings side of the the family history, and I wanted to sort of recreate that for them as well. Sounds like you got another book in you, Duffy. <laughs> I hope so. Uh, we're we're talking about a couple different things. The Giants book is always there. There's been several books about the Giants lately, but again, this would be one from inside the organization, like the like this book. Uh, there's been a lot of books about the Giants and about the ownership and about the transitions they've made in recent years. But I I have a lot of stories that I, I still have, and I could I could write about that. But my publisher is really interested more in my mother and the evolution of the gay uh, bar business and the gay community in San Francisco in the early 60s would be a little more difficult to research. But um, they think there, there might be a, a more interesting, uh, interested audience for, for that part of it. Yeah. Well, thanks a lot for coming in, Duffy. Good yeah. to see you. Thanks well, for having me. Welcome back pleasure. to The Chronicle. Always great to come back to The Chronicle. Yeah, and good luck with the book. Thanks so much.
You are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Thank you to Sam Whiting and our guest, Duffy Jennings. Our producer today is me, Peter Hartlob. Supervising producers are King Kaufman and Libby Coleman. Executive producer is Tim O'Rourke. And our editor-in-chief is Audrey Cooper. Our music is Midnight Special by Ease Jammy Jams. Read our columns and subscribe to The Chronicle at www.sfchronicle.com. Chronicle podcasts are on Apple Podcasts and other streaming services. Listen at www.sfchronicle.com slash podcasts with an S.